Now, turn with me tonight in your Bible to uh, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to read together the first 12 verses of this chapter. (coughs) Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll start reading at verse 1. Let us hear the word of the Lord. These, of course, are tremendous verses, full of so much precious truth. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath proposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from Ephesians chapter 1 and the verse 12. It reads as follows, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And my theme this evening is considering the Reformation principle of solia de gloria. This, of course, is the fifth and final sola that was preached by the Reformers during the Protestant Reformation. And I've already dealt with four in past Sunday evenings. Sola Scriptura, uh, Sola Gratia, uh, Sola Fide, and Sola Christus. Now, logically, these four solas lead to a fifth. And the fifth is namely this, solia de gloria. It's a Latin term. And it means, if you haven't guessed it, glory to God alone. Now that is a tremendous truth. Here is a wonderful doctrine. What does it mean? It means that everything that is done is done for the glory of God. And it's done to the glory of God, to the exclusion of all self-gratification and self-will and pride. 
It also means that every true born-again believer is to be motivated and inspired by God's glory, and they in turn then will display a consuming passion to live for the glory of God alone. And I ask tonight, if you're a child of God, professed to be saved, blood-washed and spirit-born, is that the desire of your heart that you live for the glory of God alone? Now, I have three thoughts for you. Usually have three, sometimes four, but we've just three tonight. I want you to think, first of all, of the declaration of the glory of God. Think of these words. His glory. That we should be to the praise of his glory. Now, where is the glory of God seen? Where is it manifested? Where is it displayed? Could I suggest that it's seen in the being of God? Remember Moses' prayer, Exodus 33 and verse 18. Show me thy glory. God answered that prayer. And as he did so, he revealed the fact that he is a transcendent, infinite, eternal, unchangeable God in his being. God, of course, is beyond the comprehension of the human mind. Job's question stands, canst thou by searching find out God? And the answer is no, because God is eternally awesome. God is transcendent. God is infinite. And God revealed himself to Moses. And when he did so, Moses needed to be hidden in the cliff of the rock. And the reason why he was hidden in the cliff of the rock was that he didn't perish in the dazzling splendor of the glory of God. God said, Thou shalt see my back parts, but thou shalt not see my face, for no man has seen my face and live. And of course, you can read about that in Exodus 33 and the verse 18. It's interesting that the word glory is used 375 times in the Bible. The word glory is a noun. And the word glory as a noun, of course, is an indication it's one of God's essential attributes. And even though God is transcendent and God is infinite and God is eternal and God is unchangeable in his being, men are the opposite. Men and women, of course, are like little specks of dust to God. We creatures in time are like insignificant grasshoppers. We're likened to a blade of grass or a field full of grass. Of course, the Bible reveals that men are sinful, that they are rebels in the sight of this transcendent, holy, infinite God. And the great Protestant reformers, men like Luther and Calvin and many others, they from the scriptures began to understand the very nature and being of God. And they know that God had spoken. Listen to what God had said uh, uh, about himself in the book of Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. Think of the words my glory. So it's seen in the being of God. Secondly, 
It's seen in the creation of God. You immediately can think of that uh, beautiful reference in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. In other words, natural revelation bears testimony to the glory of God. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun. So therefore the desire, the object, the purpose of every true Christian is to to reflect the glory of God. And the, the created elements, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything to do with the universe in fact. Even into the deepest parts of space. They're all bearing witness, all declaring testimony to what? The glory of God. How brilliant it is. How splendid it is. How how magnificent it is. And also, the glory of God is seen in the gospel of God. Because the glory of God is especially seen and revealed in the gospel. Look look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. We read part of it together. Come to verse Five, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, out of those 375 times where the word glory is mentioned, the word glory is also mentioned eight times In the book of Ephesians, eight, of course, is the number of new beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12 of chapter 1, verse 14 of chapter 1, verse 17, verse 18 of chapter 1, five times in the first chapter. Five is the number of grace. And then three times in chapter 3. Notice the words. It's tremendous. To the praise of the glory of his grace. You've got to think of the simplicity of grace. What is it? It's um, undeserving, ill-deserving favor of God shown to rebels and criminals and lawbreakers. You've got to think of the sovereignty of his grace. It's grace according to the will of God. It says, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. See the connection. It's free grace. It's not something that was earned or not something that was merited. It was God's choice. God was under no obligation to do anything, to to save anybody. He didn't have to give the Savior. He didn't have to provide a Redeemer. God saves by his free grace. And then think about the separation of his grace. For he says in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory. Who first trusted in Christ. And in verse 14 you've got the uh, same words. The praise of his glory. Three times it's singled out. You see the, the early reformers like Luther and Calvin. They were great students of the Bible. And once they started reading and studying the Bible, they started writing, of course, tremendous commentaries, wonderful pamphlets, books of various natures. And those, of course, commentaries and books have never been bettered in 500 years. You think of Luther's commentaries on their own. And they understood this principle that everything in life was for the 
glory of God ultimately. And that glory was seen in the being of God, seen in the creation of God, and seen especially in the gospel of God. They knew that everything had to be for the glory of God alone. You see, the gospel exalts God's grace, doesn't it? The gospel exalts God's love and mercy, God's justice, God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's truth. The gospel starts with God. It ends with God. It's all about God. And it's all for his glory. Maybe we could ask the question, why did God save us who were sinners, who were ill-deserving to be saved? We were sinful and rebels. We were hell-deserving. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what do we read here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5? Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, it was God's joy. It was God's good pleasure. It was God's delight. It pleased God to do this. And the strange thing is, it's all connected to his glory. Do you know that men tonight exist on earth for one reason? And it's to glorify God. Even sinful men, even wicked men, as well as saved men. If we could understand that everything in the universe tonight is, is, is designed to bring glory to God. And God chose that, and God was pleased to do this. That's why he says in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory. Let me illustrate. I want you to think for a moment of the largest diamond in the world. The most expensive diamond is the largest blue diamond, and it's a rare gem. It's called the Oppenheimer Blue. I trust I pronounced it right. Do you know what it cost? $57.5 million in Christie's. That's in New York. And it was sold by Christie's on May the 18th, 2016. Now, suppose you owned it. What would you do with it? Here's the Oppenheimer Blue Diamond. $57.5 million. You've just bought this. What are you going to do with it? Wear it around your neck? Let people look at it and touch it. What about letting the children play with it on the floor? What about showing it off to the world, inviting family and friends to come and look at it? Do you know, if you did own it, or I owned it, I would suggest we would do none of the above. I would suggest we'd put it in the safe. Maybe have one, two or three doors in the safe. We would be afraid for its well-being, its safety. We'd be scared to let it out of our sight. We'd be afraid to leave it alone at home in case a thief would break in and steal it. Now, now think of this. God has the best and the most important diamonds and jewels that make up his jewels. And these that are God's most important diamonds and God's most important jewels, they have rebelled against him, they have sinned against him, they have hurt him, and yet he has chosen them from all eternity. He has redeemed them by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He's adopted them into the family. He's provided an inheritance for them. And why did he do that? 
Why me, Lord? Here's the answer, so that you and I can be an amazing display of his glory and grace. And God did this without the church rites and ceremonies. It's without works. If works plays a part, then we'd glory in ourselves. How was Abraham saved? How was David saved? The Bible tells us, for by grace you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Doesn't the Bible say in Romans chapter 11 verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that comes at the very end of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Listen to the final verse of Romans. Romans chapter 16 and verse 27. Notice what it says. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You see, the gospel in its very nature has to be a testament to the glory of God. And the whole gospel, every part of it, when it's dissected, ultimately gives glory to God. And ultimately is for an amazing display of God's glory in the end of time. That's the declaration of the glory of God. Notice something quickly. The demonstration of the glory of God. If you look at our text, it says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. He's referring to those who are saved. He's referring to those who are now legally declared righteous by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once that regenerating work takes place, and we give evidence that we're now converted to Christ. Think of the words, who first trusted in Christ. And ask yourself, have I trusted in Christ? Have I experienced the new birth? Once we've experienced this new birth and are soundly converted, we will give evidence of the glory of God in our life. In other words, once we're born again, something of a passion, a love for the glory and honour of God alone will enter into our hearts and minds. It's as if we become consumed with a passion for the glory of God. And that passion for the glory of God will be seen in every area of our lives. Our lives will become gripped with one overriding, consuming passion. Could I just say tonight that another goal can rob God of his glory? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I ask tonight, if you have another goal, other than the glory of God, you're robbing God of his glory. Remember what Paul was able to say in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 and 31. He said this, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even in mundane things like eating and drinking, which we do every day. Or whatever you do, doesn't matter. From you get up in the morning to go to bed at night. What should be the chief goal and aim, purpose of us living out our lives? 
It's the glory of God. And anything other than that robs God of his glory. Let, let me illustrate. You think of music, and we, we do love to sing. I, I wish that I was a singer, but I'm not. I try my best, as Barbara knows, and she keeps me right. But but for those who love music, think of this. You, you've heard of the name Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, I believe, probably the greatest musical composer that the world has ever known. Did you know that uh, Johann Sebastian Bach uh, a Dutch man, he was saved. He was a true Christian. He loved the Lord. And whenever he composed a, a hymn for the church or a piece to be sung, he initialed it at the end. This is what he wrote, SDG. And SDG stands for Solia de Gloria. You know what he's saying? He's saying to the world, to everybody who has that piece, I'm writing this to the glory of God. And you see, once we're saved, everything we do must be done to the glory of God. And that will infiltrate into our work. That will infiltrate into our witness. That will infiltrate into our words, our worship, our walk. You see, God's curse is on everything that robs him of his glory. We've already read Isaiah 42, verse 8. Here's another one of those 375 verses. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. So whether that work involves at the kitchen sink, washing the dishes, baking buns, mopping the floor, or whether it involves working on a car or a factory floor or working in the farm or in the office, whatever we do, even our worship, I'm doing this to the glory of God. I want to say something else quickly. Not only another goal uh, robs God of his glory, but another gospel robs God of his glory. Turn to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 for a moment. Paul says there, look at verse 5 just for the context. He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, he's, he's, he's thinking about the glory of God. And then in verse 6 he says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now, now, we'll pause there. He says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. In other words, Paul says, I can't believe this, folks. He's writing to the Galatian church. He's really saying, I'm stunned. I, I'm stunned that you have moved away so quickly from him that called you into the grace of Christ and you've moved to what? Unto another gospel. And then he adds the words, which is not another. And there's a little bit of confusion here. Let me just point out that there's two different words from another being used in the Greek New Testament. Let me illustrate this way. I borrowed this from the Reverend Ron Johnson. Suppose you bought a watch. I'm putting it in my own words. Say a lovely gold watch. And you have it for Christmas. 
And of course, in the context of showing it off on Christmas Day, your, your son says to you, Do you know, Daddy, I would love a watch like that. Would you, son? I wish you'd have bought me one for Christmas. Right. So, after January, or after December, January sales, you go back to the shop, and you said to, to the lady at the counter, I would like another one like this. That, that's one of the same kind, one that's identical. Another gold watch. And we better put the name on it uh, so that uh, your son knows who, whose watch it is. But let's suppose something else. Let's suppose you didn't buy it in one of those fancy shops like Hitch Samuels or, or um, I'm trying to think of another uh, jewellery shop, but one of those expensive ones. Let's say you bought it of one of them stall holders down in St George's Market. And it turns out to be a fake. And it's not working right. And you put a new battery in it. And it still is not working right. And the hands are not going right. They're sticking. You would be annoyed. And you'd go back to the stall holder and say, Here boy, a wee word. I want another one. Now what do you mean? You don't want one that doesn't work. You want a, a, a different kind. Not the same kind. And Paul is writing here to this church in Galatia and he says, um, uh, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. In, in other words, he, he's saying to them, there's a gospel which is not the gospel. It's not the same kind that we preach. It's a different kind. It's not of God. It's not the same Lord Jesus. It's a different Jesus. It's 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 It's... Energized by a different spirit. It's based on a different scripture. We could ask tonight, why did the martyrs in the New Testament be prepared to die and suffer all that they suffered for the cause of Christ? Why did the Protestant reformers die? Why were they willing to suffer hardship? Do you know why? They were motivated by the gospel. Do you know that tonight that the Protestant Reformation was largely a a gospel movement. It was not a political movement. Yes, there were some political overtures. Yes, there were elements that were political. But by and large, it was a gospel movement. It was a rediscovery of the gospel. You see, the gospel strikes down the pride of man. The gospel humbles men, leaves them face down in the dust before God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel isn't about man. It doesn't start with man. It doesn't center in man. The gospel humbles kings. It humbles bishops and princes and cardinals and priests. It humbles the common man. It brings us all down into the one level. We're in the dust before God. I am nothing. I can do nothing. And I have nothing to recommend me to God. Do you know something else? The gospel strikes down the power of the church. You see, in the 15th and 16th century... The Church of Rome kept the common man in a form of spiritual servitude. Common man's told, you need the church. You need the councils of the church. You, you need the religious leaders of the church. You need the priest. You need the mass. You need the confessional. You, you need the rosary. You know what the common man had to do if the bishop met you in the street? You were supposed to bow down to the bishop. If you were invited to have an audience with the Pope, you had to kiss his toe and, and kiss his ring. 
Of course, there was a division in those days between the clergy and the laity. There was a, a, a section of the church known as the nave, and that's where the priests performed the worship in Latin. The congregation observed, but they couldn't enter into that worship. Only the clergy could approach God. And to get to God, you, you had to approach the clergy. The mass was in a language that they couldn't comprehend and the priest of course believed he had magical power to change the bread and wine into the blood and body of Christ and you were told when you received the wafer that, that you were receiving the Lamb of God and the priest would have dressed in priestly robes and he would have indicated there was a difference between them that he, he was a cut above and apart from the common man and the, the church of course was ornately decorated and Adorned, And you think of what the common man lived in, even in Rome, back in the 15th century. And you see where the gospel comes. The gospel's the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel breaks down these barriers. The, the gospel opened up the door of heaven to all men. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Here's another radical truth. The common man was told, along with the king, the bishop, the cardinal, you can go and talk to God yourself in Jesus' name. You, you can tell God that you're a sinner. You can tell God about your sins. You see, the gospel tore the system of Roman Catholicism apart. The subjects were now free to worship according to their conscience. The gospel changed nations. I want to tell you tonight this gospel that we believe in and preach. This gospel of justification by faith alone. In Christ alone. Through grace alone. Is still anathematized by Rome to this day. She's not repealed what she said at Trent. Being told you need the church when you're born. You need the church when you live. You need the church when you come to die. You need the rosary. You need the priest to absolve you from your sins. You need Mary. Rome, of course, teaches to this day that Mary was sinless. They believe in the doctrine of her immaculate conception, which is a lie. They believe in her bodily assumption that she was taken to heaven uh, before she died or just on the moment of death. And that was a dogma issued in 1950. You, you think of the Church of Rome's belief that Mary's a, a co-redemptrix with Christ. Think of Alphonsus Liguri's book, which is still a textbook introduced to the priests to, to this day. With the two ladders, the red and white ladder, mother and son on one, and the son refusing to receive anybody unless they're introduced to him by the mother. You see, the Church of Rome's very clever. This is what it says. You have no access to God the Father except through the Son. Isn't that wonderful? We were singing about that tonight. But here's the next line. You've no access to come to the Son except by the Mother. That's what Rome teaches. 1 Timothy 2 and 5 comes to mind for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So think lastly of the dimensions of the glory of God. You see, the glory of God permeates into every event in the lives of Christian men and Christian women. Before the Reformation, the only way to serve God was by taking holy orders, removing yourself from the world, becoming a nun or becoming a monk. Martin Luther, remember, in 1506-07, became a monk. And anybody other than a, nun, a monk or a nun or a bishop or a cardinal 
you're, you had an ordinary job and you were viewed as a second-class citizen. There was a two-tier system, as I've said, the clergy, the laity. But the Reformation changed this. The Reformation brought in the glorious truth revealed in the Scriptures that, that all work and activity that was not sinful could and should be done to the glory of God. Think of where the Protestant work ethic come from. Think of the ploughboy in the field. Think of the lady uh, washing the dishes at the sink. Think of the factory worker. Think of the motor mechanic fixing a car. Think of the teacher in the classroom. Think of a, a secretary on the phone in an office. Everything was being done. And done with this goal in mind, I'm doing this to the glory of God. Hasn't God called us to fulfill different roles? And occupy different stations in life? And why does he do that? So that he can be glorified in all places by all people. And it's, it's his eternal purpose that all his people live to his glory. And your aim and object ought to be to glorify God in all that you do. All your resources whether at home, school, work, university. All the pain that you suffer in life, God is glorified in your weakness and in your suffering. Our time management, when you think of the hours that we spend in useless activity, we've got to ask this. Do I use my resources? Do I live my life? Do I even manage my time? Am I full of praise and indebtedness to God? And I've got a mandate and a motivation in my heart to live out the gospel to the glory of God. This is a challenge. We have to ask honestly, do I live 24-7 to the glory of God? We have to ask, is all that I have done and decided upon, can I honestly say I've done it? I've decided to do this. To the glory of God. I close with this reference in Psalm 86. Another one of those 375 references to the glory of God. And listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 86. A tremendous psalm. He says in the verse 9. These words. He says. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. Is that your aspiration? You see, when you think of the dimensions of this, it reaches into every corner of our lives. And we have to ask ourselves, am I living? Am I doing things? And I'm doing it that God might be glorified. May the Lord bless these few truths to our hearts this evening on this, I suppose, maybe the most difficult of the solace to grasp.